0: Hello, readers. James D. Eugenio has spent decades researching the four major assassinations of the 1960s, John and Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr., and Malcolm X. It is JFK's murder that is the topic of his newest book, titled JFK Revisited, Through the Looking Glass, which serves as an annotated transcript of the recent Oliver Stone documentaries, the two-hour version, which shares a title with the book, and the four-part, four-hour version, JFK Destiny Betrayed, which shares a title with Jim's 1992 book on the subject. And Jim served as a screenwriter for both films. Jim, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me.
1: Um... In case uh, your audience doesn't know who I am, I've written a couple of books on the JFK case, uh, Destiny Betrayed, the second edition, and uh, another book called uh, The JFK Assassination, The Evidence Today. Now, my my most current book, which just came out and which uh, this is about, is called JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. And What this is, is it's a compilation of the two screenplays that I wrote for Oliver Stone on the two-hour version of his documentary, JFK Revisited, and the four-hour version, JFK, Destiny Betrayed. On top of that, and I, I believe the real high point of the book is... It has excerpts from the interviews that we did for the film that mostly didn't make it into the picture. If we had really used everything we had, we would have easily had a six hour movie. Okay, what what, what makes the films as distinctive as they are, at least I think so, is the number of prominent people That you'll you'll never see a JFK documentary with this many prominent people involved telling as much wonderful information as they do. And so what the book does is essentially it gives you resource notes for everything they say, and then it gives you other things that they said that didn't make it into the film. Okay, so I thought the book turned out pretty well.
0: Yeah, I did, too. And it was actually fun to read the book along with watching the four different episodes of the extended version of the documentary, too. Yeah, the annotations that you talked about and then also those interviews at the end that it shed even more light on something that it feels like at this point is a pretty open and shut case in terms of it being about more than just Lee Harvey Oswald as a lone shooter who... Uh, just so happened to pull off some miraculous things in Killing the President on November 22nd, 1963. As far as the books, uh, the book and the films are concerned, what exactly is the Assassinations Record Review Board and why is it crucial to these different projects? Well, if
1: it wasn't for the Assassinations Record Review Board, we wouldn't have done the movies or the book. Uh, See, what happened is, When Oliver Stone's 1991 film came out, JFK, the reception of that film was unprecedented in the history of cinema. There's never been a movie that had the impact, the socio-political impact that that film had. And the controversy about it started, and this is what's so amazing, it happened seven months before anybody saw the film before the film debuted, because it debuted in December of 1991. The controversy about the film started in the early summer, around May of 1991, all right? It went on through that whole period, and then it went on all the way through the Oscars because the film got nominated for several Oscars, uh, winning two, I think, all right? And so as a result of all of this controversy, for example, the New York Times, published 34 stories on Oliver JFK or the assassination in just 2 months November and December of of 1991 so if you add up all of the tv stories the tv talk shows okay the tv specials all the it, it was absolutely phenomenal and so because of this firestorm of controversy. People looked at the last part of the film in which Oliver put a kind of crawl at the end of the film saying the files of the last investigation of the Kennedy assassination, the House Select Committee on Assassinations had been closed to the public until the year 2029 words to that effect, all right? And most people didn't know this. So they flooded Capitol Hill with telegrams, phone calls, letters, etc. And so Congress was actually made to do something about this. And they called hearings, which we show in the film, all right? And they created this independent review board the Assassinations Record Review Board, ARB for short. And what they did is they set about declassifying as many documents as they possibly could that they could locate. It didn't necessarily have to be in federal repositories. They were allowed to go around the country and investigate and find new materials. And so They had, see, up until this time, you had something called the Freedom of Information Act. And if you want a declassified document, you went to court, you filed a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit, and you asked the judge, sight unseen, because you weren't allowed to see the document, to go ahead and declassify these papers. And then the CIA or the FBI would come in. And having seen the document, they would argue that no, no, it should not be declassified. Very seldom did the plaintiff win. And even if the plaintiff won, there would be what they would call redactions in the document, it means blacked out areas. All right. Well, see, what happened with the ARB is that they saw the document all right they were allowed to see it all right and if they couldn't find any objections the weight of the the weight of the case was on the fbi or the cia instead of the plaintiff making the case that the document should be declassified the fbi or the cia would have to make the case why it should not be declassified which completely turned around the whole procedure, all right? And, and there wasn't any judge to go to because the ARB was the last arbiter, all right? Well, not exactly. Let me, let me get to that, okay? But this seemed to be a pretty effective way to proceed. The only problem with the ARB was that it didn't have enough time and it didn't have enough money. So at the end of the day, they were only in office till 1998, 1994 to 1998. They weren't able to complete the job. Now, in the legislation for the review board, it says that if necessary, The last documents can be withheld until the year 2017, if necessary, all right? In that case, only the President of the United States can stop the declassification process at that time. Well, if you remember, Trump actually tweeted about this a week or two before, I think it was October of 2017. And he said he's looking forward to declassifying the last set of documents. Well, what happens? On the day that they were supposed to be declassified, he gets a visit from the FBI and the CIA. Hmm. And they do what they do to everybody. They give them a speech about If you go ahead and do this, you will be endangering the lives of agents all over the world. Blood will be on your hands if anybody, and we will come out and we will declare what happened. You know, this kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. So we're supposed to believe that 55 55 years later, okay, that there's still agents in place in the same place that they were In 1963, that somebody is actually gonna find out about. Okay.
0: Boy, it's a rare occasion, by the way, when the FBI and CIA come together to try and get something together, something done on anything. Right. You're exactly
1: right. Usually they're at each other's neck. Okay, but they come together for the Kennedy assassination. Very, very unusual. All right. So Trump backed off. That's where Trump left it. I believe that there was something like 15,400 pages that were still classified at the time he left office. So Biden comes in and everybody thinks, oh God, here's an Irish Catholic. Okay, he's got Bobby Kennedy's bust in his office. He's got a wall picture of John F. Kennedy in his study. All right, so we're finally gonna see all these documents declassified. Well, that didn't happen. He was a little bit better than Trump. He uh, declassified about one-tenth of them, I think about 1,400 pages, you know, but he deferred it for another year. In other words, in about two or three months from now, the subject should come up again. So let's put this in perspective. (laughs) 55 years after Kennedy's assassination, All the documents are supposed to be declassified. All right. Trump, whatever he did, dodges the issue for three years. Okay. Until 2020. He's voted out of office. And then we get Biden. And this is 2022. So two years. So there's added five years to the 55 years that we've been waiting for the complete declassification of these documents i mean something is screwy someplace all right you know and they say there's nothing to the kennedy assassination well i i i would believe that if you're still hiding things almost 60 years after the fact most people would beg to disagree with you
0: all right Speaking of confusing, you say in what I believe is chapter two covering episode one of the four hour version of this documentary that JFK's autopsy was not only one of the most important of the 20th century, but also one of the most confusing. How so with the latter?
1: We, you know, we had in the film and in the book, we had several very good medical people, you know, talking about this case. And this included uh, Mike Chesser, Dr. Mike Chesser out of Little Rock, who's a neurologist. This included Cyril Wecht, who's a forensic pathologist. And this included Henry Lee, who is probably the foremost criminalist in the United States, has a worldwide reputation. I did a pre-interview with Henry Lee. One of the things that his specialty is, is what is called crime scene reconstructions, okay? That is, you take the available evidence, all right, and you analyze it, and you try and figure out what really happened at the crime scene, all right? One of the things I asked him, can you do a trajectory analysis, a bullet trajectory analysis in the Kennedy case? And he said, no. And I said, why? And he said, because neither wound in Kennedy was dissected. Hmm. And coming from him, that had a pretty big impact on me. Well, because it's true to explain to your audience what this means. When you dissect a bullet wound, it means you go into the bullet track and you try and take out all of the, uh, the, the obstructing tissue and blood or metallic objects in there. And then you can actually see the trajectory through which the bullet went through the body. There's two places that should have this, this should have been done on Kennedy. One was for his wound in the back. One is for the wound in the skull. Neither one of these wounds was dissected. All right. So therefore, no one with with any kind of degree of certainty can say did this back wound come out Kennedy's throat because that's what the Warren Commission says of course I'm sure you're aware of this there's this wound that which Gerald Ford tried to disguise as going through Kennedy's neck which didn't go through Kennedy's neck it actually went through his back because we actually have the autopsy pictures now okay and we're supposed to believe that it came in at his back at a downward trajectory and exited at his throat which is a higher point Okay. Yeah. A lot Harold of Gerald
0: Ford, by the way, literally changed what was it? The Warren Commission transcripts to denote as much. Right. Right. He said it it did in the original report,
1: it said the bullet came in his back. Ford changed back to the base of the neck. Okay. So he moved it up a couple of inches. Hmm. You know, this is what they call consciousness of guilt. Hmm. Okay. Ford understood that this was not going to work. All right, and so he actually changed it, you know. Now, the bullet in the skull, we have Mike Chesser talking about this, okay, the the neurologist from Little Rock, and and as he says, and I think Weck talks about this a little also, the way you track a wound through the brain is um, you do two methods of cutting One is called a bread loaf where you cut the like a piece of bread, okay? The other is like a pie where you cut it like this in quarters or eighths, all right? Now, you do that after you put the brain in what they call a a formaldehyde solution so that it has some degree of solidity, all right? Now, why do you do that? So you can see where the bullet went, okay, as it was traveling through the brain. Well, to our knowledge, and at least as far as the official documents go, all right, as Henry Lee and Cyril Weck note in the film, this was not done, okay? So in other words, and by the way, in the book, in the book, Henry Lee talks about this, He says, here you have this bullet that comes in at the bottom of Kennedy's skull on a right-to-left trajectory, okay? And it exits over here at the right temple on a left-to-right trajectory. And Oliver asks him, well, what kind of an angle is that? That's a 90-degree angle, okay? You know, so he was really struck by how unusual that was. But since the brain was never dissected, that's what we're supposed to accept as part of the count. So in other words, here you, this is what you have. (laughs) You have a bullet going downward, okay, in Kennedy's back, about at least two inches below his collar, and then coming up, okay, and exiting his throat, okay? And then you have a bullet coming in at the base of Kennedy's skull, going right to left, reversing trajectory, and ended up in a space of a few inches, turning 90 degrees and going left to right. Now, for a lot of normal thinking people, that's rather unusual, okay? And I'm, I'm really glad we got into these points Okay, both on your show, you know, and in in, in the book, because I, I think they're really important to understand how absurd most of the forensic elements of the Kennedy assassination are. And unfortunately, most of the public doesn't know about this, you know, the way that they should due to the media.
0: Yeah, and another one of those things that I think is important for the general public to wake up to, and this is something that I discussed with Oliver several months back when we discussed the two-hour version of the film, is that there were two doctors who tried to save Kennedy's life at Parkland Hospital in Dallas, Dr. Malcolm Perry and Dr. Kemp Clark. Now, after Kennedy's body was flown back to D.C., they actually held a press conference back in the DFW area. What did they say, Jim? And why is this audio and video never really seen the light of day?
1: That's a very good question.
0: Kemp uh, Clark
1: was the head of uh, neurosurgery at Parkland Hospital. Malcolm Perry was a surgeon, all right, who performed the tracheotomy on President Kennedy at Parkland Hospital. After Kennedy passed on, a little bit after two o'clock that afternoon, there was a press conference, right? In which they were supposed to inform the media what had happened. There is no surviving video of this press conference, which is very hard to believe. And in fact, in the book, I talk about how there is evidence that the Secret Service uh, did away. They went to some of the TV stations in the Dallas area and tried to confiscate any video that would be left. They also lied about not having a transcript of the press conference, which they actually did. The ARB proved that they did have a transcript I believe, November the 25th. All right. But they lied to the Warren Commission about not having one. Now, this is how we know about what Perry and <clears throat> Kemp-Clark said was through the recovered transcript, right? And Kemp-Clark said words of the effect that he believed that due to the nature of the whole back of Kennedy's head that he was probably hit by a tangential shot from the front, Okay. Because as we know, most of the time, entrance wounds are small and exit wounds are larger because they carry through all the blood and tissue with the bullet and then they blast out the back of the head. All right. Malcolm Perry said that when he did the tracheotomy on the wound in Kennedy's neck, it had the appearance. Of being from the front. So, Malcolm Perry, three times during this press conference, says words to the effect that the neck wound was a wound of entrance. Combined with what Kemp Clark said, this is pretty <laughs> convincing evidence that Kennedy was hit from the front. Now, Because of this, I I believe because of this, this is the reason that the video was gone. This is the reason that the Secret Service hid the transcript. All right. Now, we also know something that is not in the film, but I did put in the book, that two things happened to Malcolm Perry that day and night. First of all, after the press conference, a well-dressed gentleman in a suit grabbed Perry by the arm and said words of the effect, don't ever say that again. Okay. All right. We know this because of this documentary, The Parkland Doctors, um, which was supposed to be broadcast by CBS, but they didn't go through with it. It's on that documentary film. Now, remember, this press conference took place at around 2.15 to 2.30 that day. How could anybody at that early hour understand that what Perry said was not what they wanted him to say. Very weird. Then that night, that night at his home, he was in receipt of phone calls from Bethesda. And he said it was the actual autopsy doctors And they wanted him to change his story. And he was resisting. And he said to reporter Martin Stedman that they told him that if he kept on resisting, they would bring him up before a medical board and attempt to take away his license to practice medicine. All right. Now, do I think that the autopsy doctors were behind this? No, I don't. I don't believe that they would they were that experienced in skull dodgery, as they say. All right. But we do know that the Secret Service was there and we do know that there were Pentagon guys there. OK, there were several, at least several people from the military at the autopsy. And these guys were influencing what the doctors could and could not do. At the trial of Clay Shaw in 1969, Pierre Fink, one of the pathologists, admitted that the reason he did not, they did not dissect the back wound is because they were told by certain people in the gallery not to do so. And he said it was by, as he recalled, some kind of army general who told him not to. All right. And so that's what I believe happened with that phone call. I believe that the autopsy doctors were under the influence of either the secret service guys or the military guys trying to get Perry. And by the way, eventually they were successful. Perry did backtrack on his story okay, before the Warren Commission and then later before the House Select Committee. But in the book and in the film, we have Dr. Don Miller, who worked with uh, Perry, uh, I believe, at the University of Washington Hospital there. And, uh, and one night after they had done a difficult operation and Miller had badgered Perry, for months to talk about what happened. And he said, and Perry said to him, that it was an entrance wound. It was undoubtedly an entrance wound, all right? Now, this is very important, I believe. I mean, it's really important because first of all, it reveals that the people who first saw Kennedy's body you know, at Parkland said that Kennedy was hit from the front. Two shots likely from the front. But then it goes beyond that, I believe, to show just how fast the cover-up of Kennedy's assassination took place. I mean, on the first day. Literally on the first day. You know, within hours. There's a and this strongly suggests that something I've always kind of tended to. i that the cover up was planned with the conspiracy. Okay.
0: Oh no question.
1: Yes, I mean to snap on a cover up that fast. I mean I think you had to be planning it, you know, along with the conspiracy. You know.
0: Oh, there were probably so many um, plants that were in and around Dealey Plaza and around Dallas that day. I don't know how much credibility you give to the three tramps, but the fact that uh, two of them look like Hunt and Sturgis, and there's a possibility of Woody Harrelson's dad being that third tramp. I think that's something. And I think there are other bits and pieces that you can examine that have come out over the years, whether you're talking about Matt, uh, Mac Wallace's a partial fingerprint, being the one fingerprint that's even been close to to being identified on the sixth floor of the Texas Book Depository, or other examples like that, that shows that um, Lee Harvey Oswald was not a lone actor.
1: Well, if you you saw the film, right? Yes. So yeah, okay. Well, you have the three secretaries on the yeah. uh, on the on the fourth floor, and and we that's in the film, and it's also in the book. And this is, uh, this is, I believe, very exculpatory about Oswald, all right? If, uh, you're, if your audience doesn't know who I'm talking about, we're talking about Vicki Adams, all right? We're talking about Sandy Stiles, okay? And their supervisor, uh, Dorothy Garner, all right? Why is this so important? Oswald is supposed to be on the sixth floor. He is supposed to fire fired three shots. He then goes the other side of the floor, shoves the rifle in between these boxes, okay? Then goes out the back, and there's only one set of stairs in the Texas School Book Depository that goes from the top to the bottom of the building, all right? And so he's supposed to then run down those stairs. And then if you believe the official story, which I don't, but for argument's sake, we'll, we'll say it is. He's then seen on the second floor, okay, at a soda machine, and he's observed by a policeman, Marion Baker, and the supervisor, Roy Truly. So in other words, he had to be really heading down those stairs pretty fast to be seen something like 75 seconds, you know, after the shots went off. well, Adams and Stiles were on the fourth floor looking out the window, observing the motorcade. All right. They said they stayed there until approximately when the car floated underneath the trestle, the bridge that goes over Elm and Commerce Street. Mm -hmm. All right. They then turned around. Okay. And they then ran out the door. Down the stairs to the first floor. All right. Now. I have been. On those stairs. Okay. I was I was I was allowed to be on them because I was there in 1991 when they were just opening up the sixth floor museum. And it wasn't all sectioned off the way it is today. Mm -hmm. I actually got to look out the window, by the way, also. Hmm. See those stairs in modern office buildings you generally have low stairs that are kind of cushioned most of the time they have a layer of fabric or maybe latex rubber over okay all right that's not what those stairs are like were like back then they were tall wooden rickety steps so what I'm going to argue is that it's hard enough to believe that Sandy and Victoria would not have seen Oswald. It's almost impossible to believe that they would not have heard him coming down those stairs, you know. And then we have Garner, and the importance of Garner is that she stayed on the fourth floor. All right, she stayed there, and she said. Um, that she didn't see anybody until she saw the policeman and Roy Truly come up the stairs.
0: Hmm.
1: All right. Now, here's what's so bad about all this. As we show in the film, the Warren Commission knew about Garner because the local Justice Department attorney, Marsha Stroud, okay had talked to her and she had sent a letter to the Warren Commission, to J. Lee Rankin, the chief counsel. And she mentions Garner, okay, and not seeing anyone on those stairs. This was in June. Now, why is that important? Because the Warren Commission doesn't close down until September. Try and find anything from Garner in the Warren Commission volumes. 888 pages of the Warren Report, 26 volumes of evidence and testimony, comes about 17,000 pages, and you won't see Garner, Garner's testimony in there, which I think is really, really ridiculous. Also, and this shows you how the Warren Commission knew how strong this evidence was. They did not have Sandy Stiles testify before the Warren Commission. They only had an FBI interview with her. See, and as Barry Ernest, who is our witness on this in the film, because he wrote a book about Victoria Adams called The Girl on the Stairs. All right. We asked them about this. She says, well, why do you think they didn't want to call Sandy. And he said, well, look, it's easy to isolate one witness and try and discredit them, which they did, okay? Much harder if you have a corroborating witness to make the first witness look wrong, okay? And, that, and of course, with Garner, it would have been just about impossible, all right? So what this does, of course, is... It creates, as lawyers say, a very strong alibi for Oswald not being on the sixth floor at the time of the shooting. Okay. And I I think it's very important. And the Garner stuff, the stuff about Garner, that didn't come out till 1999. Let me say that again. Dorothy Garner's document did not come out till 1999. If it wasn't for the ARB, I don't, it wouldn't have come out till 2029, I believe, it, because it was that explosive. All right? So I'm, I'm really glad we got this in there, and I'm glad we got it in the book with a little bit more length there, because uh, I, I, think, I think it's very important to know about this, because I, like I said, I think it's very exculpatory I mean, to present this kind of evidence in a court of law, I mean, it's very powerful stuff.
0: Yeah, there's so much crucial information that the Assassination Records Review Board was able to uncover by declassifying all these different documents. One such piece of information really helps to shed light on what exactly it was that Kennedy was doing to piss off the U.S. establishment so much. He was making serious efforts to redirect U.S. foreign policy, to de-escalate building tensions with Russia in the Middle East, Egypt, South America, and even in Vietnam, Jim. An important meeting was held in the summer of 1961 that included JFK, then CIA director Alan Dulles, who JFK ultimately relieved of his duties and then somehow he ends up on the Warren Commission. Weird coincidence there. And then also the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Lyman Lemnitzer. The transcript of this meeting was declassified in 1993. What exactly happened in this meeting? (laughs) This is, um,
1: we had John Kenneth Galbraith's son Jamie Galbraith, talk about this in both the film and the book. This is really, you know, when you think of it, it's it's a really amazing discussion that took place, all right? See, because way back then, in the early 60s, the United States had a very powerful and significant strategic missile advantage over moscow all right it was very overwhelming okay i think it was like 8 to 1 or maybe even 10 to 1 all right um that we could deliver what they call icbms over russia at a much stronger and more numerous rate than the russians could deliver to the united states an icbm is short for intercontinental ballistic missile, which means it'll fly at a range of over 3,000 miles, okay, on one payload, all right? And so (laughs) Dallas and Lemnitzer are actually talking about the optimum time to do an attack on the Soviet Union, and they believe that the optimum time where we would have the maximum advantage and they wouldn't be able to deliver, the Russians would not be able to deliver any kind of second strike, okay, would be in the fall of 1963, all right, all right, and Kennedy sits there asks one or two questions. Then he gets up and he, he walks out of the meeting. Okay. And he sees Dean Rusk out in the hallway and he says words to the effect. And we call ourselves a human race. Okay. So, so Jamie Galbraith talked to one of the guys who was there, Walt Rostow. And he was trying to get him to remember the meeting. And Walt says words, to the effect. Oh, you mean the one where they wanted to end the world? (laughs) Okay. This is the kind of thing that Kennedy was putting up with, okay, which uh, he really, uh, you know, he ended up, as you mentioned, he forced Dulles out, okay, and then in the, I I believe in the spring of 1962, he tried to get rid of Lemnitzer also, but Lemnitzer escaped. He managed to go to the uh, to NATO, you know, in Europe. But he he really did not like either of those of those gentlemen. In fact, Lemnitzer is one of the guys who proposed Northwoods. What was Northwoods? Northwoods was probably the granddaddy of what we call false flag operations. In other words, where the true perpetrator tries to disguise that it's really him and he blames it on on somebody else, okay? And so these were, I believe there were eight or nine of them, eight or nine schemes that Lemnitzer and the Joint Chiefs dreamed up. And the theme behind all of them was to simulate an attack by Cuba against the United States. One of them was to have a wave of terror in South Florida using our own Cuban exiles, but blaming it on Castro. One was an assault on Guantanamo Bay, the port that the United States still keeps in, I think it's the uh, western end of Cuba. And then, of course, there's the one that Doug Horn talks about in the film where you fly a jet liner over Cuba and then it's like a drone and then you blow it up, OK, and blame it on a Cuban missile. All right. And these
0: were. Oh, and you also, to... even though it's a drone, you frame it as a bunch of Americans. Right. Right. Exactly. Tragedy.
1: Yeah, exactly. All right. And so, <laughs> Kennedy rejects all these ideas, okay? Uh, and then Lemnitzer says, words of the effect, well, let's just go ahead and invade anyway. Let's not have any pretext. And this is when Kennedy gets rid of Lemnitzer, okay? Or tries to get rid of him, all right? So, these are some of the disputes that Kennedy had with these guys. You know, and then we can talk a little bit about what happened during the uh, missile Crisis, where Kennedy had a meeting with the Joint Chiefs, and Curtis LeMay, the head of the the Air Force, you know, compares what Kennedy is doing with what Neville Chamberlain did at Munich because Kennedy didn't want to invade and bomb the missile silos. He wanted to use the blockade, okay, to neutralize uh, the Russian threat. And Curtis LeMay didn't really, didn't like this a lot. And he compared what he was doing to the sellout at Munich by the British. All right, Kennedy couldn't believe it, okay? You know, and, and so then he leaves the meeting. And I think it's at that time or maybe a little bit later that he says, words, of the effect, you know, one thing about the joint chiefs, if you take their advice, there won't be anybody around to argue they were wrong later. <laughs> yeah. All right. And, and so now in the film and in the book, what's so interesting about what I just said about LeMay was well, it's, It's interesting in and of itself, but we advance evidence that, A, LeMay lied about where he was that day, the day of the assassination. He was secretly in Canada, okay? Secondly, he broke orders about where to land in Washington that night. He was supposed to land at Andrews Air Force Base. He landed at National Air Force Base, which is interesting when you think about it, because if you recall, there were literally at least a half a dozen cameras at Andrews Air Force Base that night because Kennedy's body was coming in from Dallas. So this might have been a way for LeMay to avoid him getting caught on camera and also national was closer to bethesda and then we conclude okay with o'connor paul o'connor talking to humes who was the chief pathologist jim humes and humes tells o'connor tell that guy over there to put out that cigar Somebody smoking a cigar in the in the in the gallery, and so O'Connor walks over, sees <laughs> that is Curtis Lemay. Lemay blows smoke in his face. Okay, <laughs> he walks over to Humes and he says, "I can't tell that guy to put out that cigar. That's Curtis Lemay." Okay, so what was Lemay doing there that night? You know, if this is all true, okay? what was he doing there that night? You know? And it's a question that we're never going to know the answer to because as we detail in the film, there was never, never, ever any kind of adequate inquiry into what happened about the death of John F. Kennedy. you know, and and look, let's put it this way. If sixty years later, they're still concealing 14,000 pages of documents. There's obviously something they don't want you to know, you know? And I think this is the result of that. We tried in our film and in the book to, uh, at least, what our object was, was to bring the latest and most credible evidence declassified by the review board to the public because we believe and I think we're absolutely correct about this that the uh, the MSM did a terrible job covering the review board the review board was in operation for four years and we have two of the guys on there Um, you know John Tunheim who was the chair Thomas Samalock, who was the uh, deputy and the press officer. And they they say, you know, we, we must have put out a hundred press releases. And we got very little, very little coverage in the entire four years we were around, you know. And now what makes it even worse is that The ARB process continued because what they did is they put on the stuff they couldn't get to, they put release dates on the documents, all right? Like we can do this one in 2001, we can do this one in 2003, we can do this one in 2005. And so there was still a trickle out of the National Archives of these documents. All right. And, but those didn't get any coverage that I can remember either, even though one of them said that Cabell, the mayor of Dallas, okay, was a CIA asset. Okay. Declared that he was since 1959. Okay. Now, Earl Cabell, the mayor of Dallas in 1963, was, of course, the brother of Charles Cabell, who was the deputy director of the CIA during the Bay of Pigs and who was the third guy that Kennedy forced out of office in 1962. All right. There were three guys he forced out, Alan Dulles, the director of the CIA, Charles Cabell, who was the deputy director, and Dick Bissell, who was what we call the director of plans. What that means is he was a director of covert operations. Kennedy believed that all three of these guys had deliberately misled him about the Bay of Pigs operation. And so that is why he had his brother on the investigating staff of the White House inquiry, which was called the Taylor Commission, all right, and because it was run by Max Taylor, General Max Taylor. And Bobby Kennedy came to the conclusion that the CIA knew that this was not going to work, okay, that they deliberately misled his brother because they believed that, once he saw that it was failing, he would call in the Navy and the Marines to bail it out. Well, Kenny couldn't do that because just a few weeks before at a press conference, he had said there will be no direct intervention in Cuba by the United States. So he, he found, you know, how can I, I mean, that's, Millions of people saw me say that. Okay. So now I'm going to turn around, you know, and 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 break my word. In the very first few months I'm in office. You know. And so he so he decided that that he was not going to intervene. So he did something that few American presidents do. He accepted the loss, you know, at the Bay of Pigs. He was very upset about it. He was very depressed about it. His wife said that. He literally cried into her arms, you know, when he got the horrible news of how bad it was going. All right, and he was depressed about it for a few weeks, and it it, it really bothered him. And so then he set up this investigatory committee, in which Bobby Kennedy was a part of. All right, and that committee did a a, a pretty decent job. And at the end of the committee, at the, I think it was in uh, September, okay, Bobby Kennedy recommended that he fire Alan Dulles, all right? And he brought in Robert Lovett, who had been a former Secretary of Defense, because he had read the Bruce Lovett report, in which they tried to fire Alan Dulles in 1959. And he brought in Lovett to talk to his brother, and Lovett said, this is the perfect opportunity for you to do what we wanted to do <laughs> three years ago. We wanted to get rid of this guy in 1959, but we couldn't because of Ike and his brother, all right? And, and so if I were you, I would go ahead and do it, all right? And so Kennedy did, along with the other two other guys. And one, one last part of that story to show you who Bobby Kennedy was after after JFK got rid of those three people, Bobby Kennedy went to Dean Rusk, the Secretary of State. all right, And he said, "Do we have any more of the Dulles family in our employ?"
0: Hmm.
1: And he said, "Yes, we have his sister." Eleanor works in the State Department. She's going to retire in about 10 months. Bobby Kennedy says, no, I want her fired also. I don't want any member of the Dulles family in this administration. And so that's what happened. Okay, she got fired also. You know, he had nothing to do with the man
0: pigs, but he didn't want anybody from the family there. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know what? It's a it's a pretty evil family. I have no no I would say so. Yeah, John Foster
1: Dulles, Alan Dulles. Yeah, they, they 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 were not, I mean, overthrows in Guatemala, you know, the uh, overthrow of Mossadegh. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, but Kennedy was actually thinking of bringing back Mossadegh. There was actually a paper written in his administration, and it was titled something like Arguments for and against... Uh, bringing back Mossadegh. If your if your audience doesn't understand this, you know, possibility they don't, you know. The uh, the CIA overthrew Mossadegh in Iran, okay, in 1953. It actually happened before the Guatemala overthrow in 1954. And they did this in cooperation with the British because Mossadegh wanted very evil thing he wanted a bigger share of the oil profits for Hmm. his own country you know versus what the british were taking out of uh, out of his country all right and that's a no-no okay (laughs) whenever you're dealing with these guys no, no no we're not giving you any more money all right and so when he insisted and he threatened to nationalize some of the uh, oil industry in, in his country, what happened is that the British and the Americans under John Foster Dulles hatched a plot to overthrow Mossadegh, which Alan Dulles implemented for the CIA. Okay. And see, this is when, when you were talking earlier about Kennedy's disagreements on foreign policy. This is one of the disagreements. See, the Dulles brothers and Eisenhower, et cetera, did not want nationalism in the third world, okay? They were more or less in favor of our European allies, the French and the British, who had these colonial empires At that time, in the nineteen fifties, predominantly uh, Africa and Southeast Asia, but they had an imperial interest in the Middle East, okay, because of the uh, oil deposits there that the British had more or less made deals with through their giant oil companies, you know, to uh, to take a hefty percentage from the Middle East powers, right? See, Kennedy disagreed with this. All right. And he said words of the effect, look, some of these people are genuine nationalists. It doesn't mean they're communists. Okay. It doesn't mean they want to join, you know, the Moscow Pact or anything. It just means that they want a little bit more control over the resources coming out of their country, all right? They want to overthrow some of the colonial shackles, you know, and imperial shackles that the Europeans have on them. That's not necessarily dangerous. And he said, in fact, I think that we can handle this situation because we have more to offer than Moscow does, okay? We can help them, all right? We can help them become more independent in many different ways, all right? And so this is the argument that he made. And in fact, as in the film and in the book, we I'm not sure if you're familiar, you, pro, you probably are because you saw the film. Kennedy made an explosive speech in the Senate in 1957, which was called the Algeria speech. All right. And what that was about is that at this time, France was involved in a colonial war to maintain its possession of Algeria on the north coast of Africa. All right. Algeria was rebelling, it was an ugly, ugly guerrilla war. All right. France had something like four hundred thousand troops to put down the rebellion, and it devolved into really a whole series of atrocities, and torture, etc bombings. And oh, there's a good film about this, uh, Pontecorvo's uh, "The Battle of Algiers." If you haven't seen it, you really should. It's a very good movie. All right. And Kennedy studied the situation for months. And then he went on the floor of the Senate, I think in the summer of 1957. And he made what is probably the most explosive speech about American foreign policy from that decade. And he said, words of the effect, I can't believe that we're watching this happen after just three years ago where we saw the same thing happen at Dien Ben Phu. All right? Three years ago, we backed the French Empire, okay, in its failed attempt to keep hold of Indochina. Well, they lost. <laughs> All right. OK, now, here we are just three years later, and we're doing the same thing. All right? Can we really not remember what just happened 36 months ago? All right? And so and so he said, "We should not be condoning this. We should not be helping this. Okay? This is an ugly, ugly war that we don't want to be involved in, All right? We should be doing two things. Number one, if we're really a friend of Paris, we should be encouraging them to go to the negotiating table, to find a way out of this thing, because it's going to tear France apart. By the way, he was exactly right about this, because there actually was going to be a kind of mini-rebellion within France, by the renegade group that was backing taking over Algeria called the OAS, the secret army organization, who actually tried to overthrow De Gaulle because De Gaulle was trying to find his way out and letting Algeria go. So he said, number one, we have to save France, okay? But number two, we have to begin to free Africa, all right? And that's how he closed the speech, all right? And to say that Kennedy came through on that latter thing is, is an understatement, under, uh, because once Kennedy became president, all right, um, he met with, I believe, in two years and 10 months, he met with 28 heads of state from Africa, 28 in two years and 10 months. Eisenhower met with eight in eight years. Okay, so you can see you can see the difference. Now, one last point about this: in the film and in the book, we talk about Kennedy in the Congo. All right, um, Kennedy was backing Patrice Lumumba, who was the democratically elected, constitutionally mandated president of Congo in the summer of 1960. And Congo is a very big country. I think it's the second biggest country in Africa. It has some enormous amounts of natural resources there.
0: It's literally one of the most important countries on this planet for the sake of the batteries that we use in our phones, computers, and now our electric vehicles.
1: You're yeah, you're exactly right. All right, and Kennedy was going to back Lumumba. All right, he thought this is great. This guy can set an example as we decolonize Africa. All right. Well. The problem was our European buddies didn't like it. You know, the Belgians, the British, and to a lesser extent, the French. They didn't want to see Lumumba succeed, all right? And so they hatched a plot to split the country apart, its wealthiest zone called Katanga. They they literally created a new state (laughs) where nothing had existed before. All right. And this became a civil war. Okay. Where it shouldn't have been. All right. And so Kennedy, they knew, would end up favoring Lumumba. So what happens? The CIA gets together with the Belgians and they hectically begin to hatch a series of plots, including secret assassins, Like QJ Wynn and WI Rogue, those are the code names the CIA had given them. They send their chemist over there, Gottlieb, okay, to try and poison Lumumba. All right. And none of these things work. All right. And so what they do, what they decide to do, is they decide to help turn over Lumumba, who had escaped house arrest, over to his enemies in Katanga. Which succeeded. And I believe 72 hours before Kennedy was going to be inaugurated, Lumumba's put before a firing squad. All right. He's killed. They dig up his body and they pour sulfuric acid on it. Okay. This is how bad they wanted. To, they wanted to erase this guy from the pages of history. All right. Kennedy doesn't know about this. The CIA doesn't tell them. Although they're perfectly aware what happened. All right. And so what happens is that Hammerschold, the secretary general at the UN, he tells Adlai Stevenson, our representative at the UN, what it happened. And Stevenson now what's incredible about this it's not until February the 13th which is about a month after the assassination of Lumumba that Stevenson calls Kennedy and tells him. And there's a very famous picture of Kennedy getting this phone call because White House photographer Jock Lowe is taking pictures of him and his kids there and kennedy covers his face his expression collapses okay you know and he says something like oh no all right when he when he gets the news of lumumba's death now i don't think eisenhower would have reacted like that because eisenhower actually ordered his assassination okay <laughs> You know, and I don't think Johnson would have reacted like that because Johnson sent in uh, the Cuban exiles to get rid of the last of uh, Lumumba's followers in 1965. And we know what happened, of course. uh, Johnson completely reversed the policy. And it becomes, instead of a democratic republic, constitutional republic, it becomes a dictatorship led by Mabutu who chose Mabutu, who uh, was in power for 30 years, ended up being one of the richest men in Africa while he ransacked his country. And today Congo is more or less considered a failed state. You know, it's one of the most poverty stricken countries, you know, in the world, let alone Africa. And so this is, see, this is one of the results I believe of what happened with Kennedy's assassination. So when you say that we bring up some of these foreign policy reversals and why Kennedy was at odds with the people in his administration, this is one prominent example that we that we bring up.
0: Yeah, and obviously the the biggest example, I guess, from that time is what ended up happening in Vietnam. And you talked about Operation Northwoods, where they got their Operation Northwoods with the Gulf of Tonkin. But just going to suggest people check out the documentaries in the book to find out more about that. You know, it's interesting, Jim, because throughout the course of this conversation, especially over the last 20 minutes or so, I can't help but to think back to a couple of different interviews that I've conducted on this podcast that have to do with just the truly sick way that the cia was operating in the 1950s and 60s and it's funny because both books started by trying to answer a smaller question but they end up answer they end up opening this pandora's box with freedom of information act requests and stumble upon something much bigger one is nicholson baker's baseless that's the name of the book and it talks all about just the really messed up things the cia was doing in the 1950s and 60s to create total destitution within these countries across the globe, in Central and South America, in Asia, I think in the Middle East as well, where I mean, they have feather bombs, they're sickening animals, they're finding all these different ways to just sicken populations and make sure that they're living in the poorhouse for as long as possible. The other book that deals less with the CIA and more with the Manson murders, have you read Tom O'Neill's Chaos by Chance? Yes. Okay, so yes. you're familiar with the Jolly West story then and what yes. you uncovered there. What do you think about that, about Jolly West visiting Jack Ruby when Jack Ruby is in jail after he kills Oswald? And Jolly West, who was supposedly a psychiatrist, he definitely has affiliation with the CIA. He had an office that he was operating out of uh, Haight-Ashbury during the heights of uh the uh the peace love and whatever else going on in san francisco back in the 1960s well he leaves whatever meeting he has with jack ruby and all of a sudden jack ruby is no longer the same after that he is certifiably insane i think he probably ends up getting diagnosed with cancer soon after that and ultimately dies of cancer in prison uh did that do anything for you one way or the other as somebody who has well let's put it this way from this uh, era so much
1: Let's put it this way. I I I I was aware of West and Ruby, but Tom did a really good job of filling in a lot of details. Okay, he did a lot of work on this. Went through a lot of files. All right. Now, I think I think what we should uh, ske- sketch in the background of this first. Um, one of the things the Warren report said is that Ruby had no accomplices and didn't know Oswald, all right, before he went in to the basement and and shot him. I don't know if you're familiar with the documentary, Evidence of Revision, but it's a very interesting multi-part documentary that's on YouTube and has some very, very... um compelling film that i had never seen before it's very obvious when you watch that film that ruby is trying to hide behind a policeman called blackie harrison okay before he pops out and he shoots oswald in our movie we reveal the remarkable coincidence of the two horns that go off At about the time that A, Oswald comes into the foyer and B, right before uh, Ruby jumps forward and kills him. And I don't think any serious researcher believes the Warren Commission story that Ruby came down the Main Street ramp. Okay. He, He simply did not come down the Main Street ramp. And I can go into all kinds of evidence why he didn't. So the idea that Ruby did not have any help getting into the building that day simply will not stand up under analysis, okay? Now, the other part of the story, which you bring up.
0: And by the way, just to give a little bit more context, Jolly West is a guy that the evidence has shown was literally trying to manipulate minds. He was trying to yes. engage in mind control by using LSD on these hippies who were coming in for whatever treatments.
1: Yeah. It's, what, what you're talking about is, is the CIA project called MKUltra, which was a way that the CIA was investigating under both Dulles and Richard Helms to do something which they termed mind control a way to control somebody without them knowing it and to do something that they would not do in a normal state. Now also another aspect of this is simply called brainwashing. Okay. Um, what, jo- and, and Jolly West was part of this. Yeah. Jolly West is part of this. Now can you imagine having a guy like that have access to Jack Ruby, who just shot the alleged assassin of John F. Kennedy. All right? Unbelievable. It's it's, it's really kind of unbelievable. All right? And so, as Tom outlines, what happened is that West, more or less, had Ruby declared whatever you want to call it incompetent or out of control or so that anything he said from that time on the implication was you can't listen to this guy because he's off his rocker okay you know and ruby said some pretty interesting stuff you know wh- wh- you know during his incarceration Right. um what you know, in the film, we have a, a film clip of him saying, uh, right in front of a camera, that the world will never know. You know, words of the effect. The world will never know. You know that my what my true mission was, and then somebody asks him, "Are there people in power who don't want them to know?" And Ruby says, "Yes." Okay, all right. Now. On top of this, this whole thing of having dismissed as a quack, you know, or a guy who can't be trusted because he's lost his bonkers, okay, you know, there's also the almost amazing coincidence that, see, most attorneys, including Percy Foreman, who was a very high-powered Texas lawyer at that time, Most attorneys said there is no way in the world Ruby should be tried in Dallas. Okay. Because you're depriving him of a right to a fair trial because you can't find a neutral jury in Dallas. That's going to give him a fair trial. But the judge went ahead and overruled that. So one of the appeals grounds that Phil Burleson, uh, who was on the original defense team appealed on, was that the judge made a mistake in not changing the venue, all right? Well, the appeals court ended up agreeing with that ground, and they granted Ruby a new trial. So what happens a month later? (laughs) A month later, what happens is that Ruby, in the space of a few weeks, okay, goes from bad to worse, and he dies of cancer, okay, while he's in the Dallas police lockup. all right? Now, many people, uh, including Norman Mailer is one of them, you know, wonder, was that just a coincidence? Or do they just not want to give Ruby a trial in a more fair venue? You know, with a different way to uh, uh, somehow formulate what really happened that day. you know, and and you and you really do have to wonder, there's been a lot of research done on more than one person about the possibility of injecting somebody with cancer. okay? And some scientists tend to agree that you can. You know, of course, we're never going to know. But the presence of Jolly West, you know, in Ruby's cell, I think raises some, let us say, provocative questions about what happened to Jack Ruby, you know, and why on earth you would ever let West in there, you know, is, uh, is, is really kind of mind boggling.
0: Well, I want to say he was in there for several hours as well. Well, do you even think that he necessarily needed to poison Ruby with LSD to get him a little bit off his rocker? Or was it merely him just coming out and saying, this guy's lost his mind, he isn't credible anymore, and at that point, nobody treats anything he says with even an iota of respect? I I think the second is the most important part. Okay.
1: Okay, I think his declaration... Cause at that time, nobody really knew who the hell he was. Right. Okay. I mean, he was really kind of undercover at that time. You know, it wasn't until later that all this stuff about Jossie Jolly West came out, you know? So he was pretty, you know, you have to say hidden who he was, what he was doing there. Nobody could really make any kind of, wait a minute, you know, the connection, you know, as they say, connecting the dots. So I think it was his declaration that was what I believe
0: the powers that be wanted him there for. So JFK, this is going to be the last question here, Jim. I appreciate the extended time. JFK obviously had a multitude of enemies by the fall of 1963. The CIA, the FBI, military leaders – the mafia who helped get him elected of course and then he and robert uh, paid them no favors in return once they actually took office who do you believe was the most responsible for killing kennedy and how complicit do you think lbj was with this plan
1: <laughs> okay this is this is always a, a a difficult question to reply to in in the film what we tried to put forth uh, was a kind of shorthand way of saying that we believe that uh, the CIA, which was obviously manipulating Oswald in advance, we did a lot of work on that in the film. All right, and some in the Pentagon, okay, which was opposed, well, was opposed to Kennedy across the board, that they then helped with the cover up. All right. Now, you can make an argument, of course, that because of Ruby's background, that he was brought in because the CIA had been working with the mob, okay, on, on attempts to kill Castro, okay, that he was brought because a lot of people think that Oswald was not supposed to make it out of the Texas theater alive, okay, that uh, that he was supposed to be disposed of, you know, but he attracted so much attention by screaming, you know, I'm not resisting arrest, et cetera. There were too many witnesses. And so they couldn't, all right. And so they had to bring in a safety net, which ended up probably being Ruby, you know, and we we know that Ruby was, if he wasn't, A gangster he was certainly a wannabe you know he's doing all kinds of uh, nutty stuff there you know in dallas right under the nose of the police you know and they they never put him away for anything all right now uh as far as far as johnson that's a kind of open question you know because some people argue look Johnson was such a bad guy. He was was so corrupt to begin with. Would you even have had to bring him in? You know, I mean, here's a guy who's under a lot of pressure. Okay, Uh, and then there's rumors that Bobby Kennedy is going to do anything he can to keep him off the ticket the next year. Okay, and essentially throw him to the dogs. Okay, you know, have his because his own Justice Department came down there to investigate those charges about Billy Solest. Okay, so, uh, you know, some people say, you know, he would have just gone along with it anyway, you know. And and so you you really didn't have to actually bring him in. And and while there's let's put it this way. Anybody who would appoint the guys this guy did to the Warren Commission, okay, was not looking for the truth. And I'm so glad that um, we played some of the, and and in the book especially, uh, the converse, because this is very strange. I believe that the best guy in the Warren Commission was Richard Russell the senator from Georgia, okay? And we tried to prove this in both the film and the book. It was Richard Russell who essentially said at the very beginning, like in February, you know, something's going on here, okay? Katzenbach and Warren know everything that's going to happen, and they're going to try and blame everything on Oswald which I don't think is a tenable supposition Mm. because Russell was a lawyer, okay? And then he more or less boycotted the meetings and he sent in his legal assistant from Atlanta, uh, Alfreda Scobie, you know, to go in and do her own kind of inquiry. And then at the very last meeting of the Warren Commission, this shows you how corrupt the Warren Commission was. At the very last meeting, Russell was going to make his case against a single bullet theory, all right? And that they had to do something to qualify this because he just didn't buy it, all right? There was a girl there who was like doodling on a notepad. Hmm. And Russell assumed that she was a stenographer. Well, it turns out the contract with the stenography company had expired a few days before. So what happened, if you can believe this, what happened is they knew what Russell was going to say. And they did not want it recorded in the executive session meetings, so they could ignore it. And so if you look at the transcript of that final meeting, which I believe is September the 18th, 1964, okay? There is no transcript. All it is is a bunch of notes saying, uh, we're gonna do this to, to finalize the report. We're gonna do this to get out the volumes. There is no transcript. And when Harold Weisberg alerted Russell, to this fact, which I believe was in 1969 or something, Russell was shocked at what had happened. And he sent his assistant over to the National Archives. And he comes back and says, he's right. There is no transcript of that. And so he got the picture of what had happened. Okay, that the guys on the commission, warned Ford, Dulles, decided to sucker him into thinking his objections were going to be recorded when they really weren't. Richard Russell became the first commissioner to come out in public and declaim against the Warren report for that reason. Okay. We can close with that. It's a great story.
0: (laughs) It's a really arrogant game that they were playing, but sadly, they've gotten away for, uh, with it all these years. And you're they, you're absolutely correct. It's it's a shame that they did get away with it. And thankfully, there are people like you who are helping to expose it in modern times. He is Jim D Eugenio. Uh, the official name is James D Eugenio. He is the author of JFK Revisited through the look uh, through the Looking Glass. Which, of course, contains the transcripts for the excellent new documentaries that he helped to write, along with Oliver Stone. That would be JFK Through the Looking Glass. That's the two hour version. And JFK Destiny Betrayed. That is the four hour version broken up into hour increments, four different hour increments. You can get those now through Apple TV, Amazon, plenty of other sources to snag those videos and get the book wherever books are sold. Jim, thank well, you. Let so- me say
1: just one last thing. Yes, sir. The, uh, the dvd which contains the whole thing plus the commentary has been out for eight weeks if you go to the amazon bestseller list and documentary it's been in the top 10 for two months okay and they say people aren't interested in the jfk case
0: (laughs) i think they are (laughs) i wholly disagree with that hopefully the biden administration allows the latest round of documents to be released here in a couple months Not holding my breath on that, but if they do, I have no doubt uh, that you and some other well-qualified people will comb through those documents to tell us about anything else that needs to be known about uh, one of the most famous murders in human history. Jim, thank you so much for the time today. Okay, thank you. Thank you to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to you for hanging out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. (laughs)